right, good morning. We're happy to be here this morning. Awesome. Uh, nothing can derail me today because I get to preach the gospel and the front row is like almost full and that rarely happens. So blessings to you, maybe even gift cards to you later. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Jason Hatch. I'm the lead and the teaching pastor. And before we jump into Matthew 7, I've got a couple very important announcements for you and really things taking place in the life of the church this week. First and foremost is empty nester dinner. If you're an empty nester, say, I don't know, um, freedom. All right, we, we're having a dinner, which we do this periodically because as we've grown, we've had more people in that empty nester age category and stage of life. Uh, and a lot of times you come in and feel like, uh, because we do have a very young uh, average age of a church, and sometimes people come in and feel that there's nobody else in their age and stage, but there are plenty. Um, so we kind of have this so that you can connect and uh, get to know each other. And so one, I'm just super beyond words grateful uh, for your presence and your uh, wisdom and ministry in the church, but also hope that it's a blessing to you. So tonight, and we'll let you self-identify. I didn't want to put an age around this, so if you identify as an empty nester, uh, which I will tonight, uh, come tonight. We're having this dinner across the street in the SLC at 6 o'clock. Dinner's free, uh, and it'll be a great time for you to meet someone else. Uh, some of you are brand new, and you might say, uh, why should I come? And I would tell you, this is an incredible opportunity for you to meet some very like-minded folks in the same age and stage. Some of you, maybe you've been around a long time and you already have some deep community. I would say to you, please come because we need your help uh, to connect with new folks. So empty nesters tonight at six o'clock. Uh, Wednesday morning, men in the room, let me hear you grunt. There, that's, uh, that's pretty good. I didn't make the empty nesters grunt. Maybe next time. Uh, at 360 Man is this uh, Wednesday morning, 630 at the Apex Building. If we have your information, you will get uh, a follow-up email about that as well. And then women in the room, what do y'all want to do? There it is. There's the cheer, the whoop. Don't forget, women's Bible study starts this Wednesday evening. Grab a booklet on your way out. This booklet was written and put together and produced by the women of Redeemer. So uh, if you don't know about that, stop by the tent on your way out. And last thing that I've got um, before we jump in uh, is there are two special people, hopefully in the room. Are you, if you're in the room and your name is Chase Bost, and Sarah Bradford, raise your hand. Okay, Chase is in the back. And where is Sarah? Sarah is uh, with her family in a chair worshiping. They don't know that this is happening, uh, but as of uh, this month, both of these uh, folks are marked, uh, marking their fifth anniversary serving here uh, at Redeemer. And uh, yes, <laughs> And I, I will say this ministry is incredibly difficult. Uh, ministry as a vocation, full-time ministry is incredibly difficult. Uh, and th those two people uh, have loved you and served you and sacrificed for you unbelievably well, really beyond words in a way that I wish uh, we could convey and you understood just how much they love you and what they have given uh, of their own lives to love and to serve you. So we just want to say a very, very special uh, thank you to Sarah. Thank you to Chase on behalf of 
of the church, I do say that. And we also uh, want to invite you, uh, listen, it, so many of you know them and you love them, uh, and some of you, even if you don't know them, you need to know this, that you have been served by them, whether you know it or not. And so I would encourage you to go into the lobby, not, not right now, uh, after the service, and we've got a table set up with two different baskets and a whole bunch of cards and some pins. Uh, would you stop by and take some time to just write an encouraging note uh, to them, uh, maybe something that they have done or said over the years or just their example um, so that we can encourage them, and then the church is uh, going to bless them in some other ways as well. So one last big thank you to Chase and Sarah. And Chase and Sarah, y'all need to pretend uh, like you are surprised when we do this in the second service. So first service, people, this is why you come early. All right, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. We are actually finishing up preaching all the way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount today. Uh, the conclusion of any sermon is very important. Uh, don't get your hopes up. This is not the conclusion. This is the conclusion of Jesus' sermon. This is the beginning of mine. But the, the conclusion is unbelievably important. And this is not just true of, of, of a sermon, but true of really any talk. Uh, any talk, you give information. And then at the closing, what you try to do is say, this is now how you should respond and what you should do. And then here are the benefits or the promises if you do that. And, and so most of the time when you put together any kind of presentation, maybe you do that for, uh, for your job, for your work, uh, present and preach through. This is what the Bible is saying. And then at the end, uh, really, we take some time to think through. Now, this would be the action step that we need to do in order to respond to what we have just heard. And if you do, here are the blessings and the benefits and the promises that come with that. Uh, and Jesus does that with his sermon. Now, with the most famous sermon ever preached on earth, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus closes his sermon with one last metaphor that we're going to look at this morning. It's a metaphor of two builders. Okay? Uh, and what he is going to do is he's going to separate all of the people that heard his sermon. So he's not talking about people that haven't been exposed to him or his teaching. He's talking about everyone that have, had sat through and listened to his sermon. And for you, those of you who have been through and listened to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he has a metaphor of two builders. Uh, and what this is doing is he's getting to the end and showing us how we should and should not respond. Okay, so the, the metaphor of the two builders uh, and the, this story that we're going to read here in a moment uh, tells the story of two very different outcomes for these two builders and the houses they build, meaning there's two very different outcomes in your life, and it has to do with how you respond to Jesus's words, and then what will happen, what are the blessings that are tied to responding in the right way. Uh, when I was single, and working years ago at Dallas Baptist University, I thought about this week because uh, my anniversary is coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, I was a single guy on a Baptist college campus, uh, and it's just like, you know, everybody thought there was something wrong with me because I wasn't married by 24 already. And so everybody was really excited to try to hook me up with someone, uh, it turn a corner and anybody's like, oh, I've, I've met someone and boy, would they make a good fit with you. Uh, and uh, I just remember one time, one of my mentors, Dr. Steve Mullen, uh, he was the Dean of the College of Christian Faith. He told me over breakfast, he said, I, I met her. He said, I met her. You need to meet her. She needs to be your wife. She has just unbelievably captivated me. Her name is Hannah Harper. And do you, there, there 
two things. One thing I did not do and one thing I did do. I did not take that information and go create a small group and memorize it and talk about it and write it down and put it on the wall uh, and just kind of soak it in. What did I do? I acted upon it, and we have been married now for 16 years, praise the Lord. Why? It matters what you do with the information. It would be such a travesty if he gave me that information, and then I just moved on with my life, and I never acted upon it. Uh, This is Jesus getting to the end of his sermon. Uh, He's going to basically say, it does not matter what you hear. Okay? it's, it's, It's shocking to think that people sat with God in the flesh and heard his sermons and many of them walked away absolutely unchanged. They, they heard what he said. It's not in what you hear, it is what you do with what you hear. Okay, so Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. This is Jesus' conclusion to his sermon. If you're there, say ready. Uh, Jesus says this, everyone then who hears... These words of mine, and I think he's not referring to the whole canon of his uh, teaching. He's not referring to all of the things that he, he, he did and would uh, teach. He, I think, is referring very specifically to this one sermon that he just preached. And in closing, he says, listen, everyone who heard what I just preached, these words of mine, and does them. So I, I, somebody was sitting there in the crowd, and this would have, have applied to them. I heard what Jesus said, and then they devoted the rest of their life to trying to obey it and respond to it and understand it in a way that it changed their life. And then he paints a picture of them. They heard it, and they did it. You need to circle that word, does. That's the, the operative difference here. And does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Think a large, big, sturdy, concrete foundation. Uh, He's saying a wise man built his house on the rock, right? We know the song. Y'all remember the song? If you don't, we'll teach it to you later. A wise man built his house on the rock, and he says, that's the person that listened to the sermon and, and, and did what I said. And the rain fell. We can relate to that. This is the only week in Midland I can preach this, and people are like, I know what he's talking about. And the rain fell, and the floods came. Amen. I was trying to drive in Midland late Friday night, and it was insane. The, the flooding was so crazy. There were actually trash cans that have been, had been flooded uh, out from underneath a gas station that had the little windshield wiper wands, and they were just floating down the road by our house. So I, I get what he's talking about. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. That's option one, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words, they sat through the sermons, they maybe took some notes, maybe got excited, maybe even said amen. They heard everything and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Uh, It was probably cheaper to do that. It was probably quicker to do that. Uh, Not thinking about the storms of life that might come, this builder just decided that he would uh, build up his big house and just do it on sand. And we all know how that would go when the storm comes. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. 
Okay, that's the last analogy that Jesus gives us in this sermon to paint the picture how we are supposed to respond to his words and what that does and the blessings and the benefits of that in our lives if we do. Uh, Jesus, and I just, I just noticed this this week, uh, that many, many times Jesus is frustratingly binary. He, 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 he only gives two options. And I've, I've realized that people don't like that about Jesus, uh, that he paints two pictures. He's like, you are either this or this. And we're like, yeah, but no, I'm, I'm creating a third category. And, and Jesus, I know you don't know about this, but I'm the, I, I, I've got my own category, right? I, and I just, I think that's interesting to think about. Uh, Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. That's very frustratingly binary, right? Some people are like, well, no, I've got this kind of middle category where I'm neutral, right? Not according to Jesus. There's only two options. Um, he, he says you're either righteous or unrighteous, holy, unholy, sinner or savior. That is very binary. So many people are like, well, I don't like that because I know I'm not righteous, holy, and savior, but I sure don't like being put in the category of unrighteous, unholy sinner. So I'll kind of create this third category where, oh, I'm just a decent person, right? He doesn't give that option. He's, he's frustratingly binary. Uh, heaven and hell, very binary. Now, only two places that every human being is going to end up in eternity according to Jesus Christ. And so there's not a third option. Uh, there, there's no waiting room. There's no third path. There's no third row. There's no purgatory. That, it's just, it's, he's frustratingly binary. You're Christian or you're not. Uh, you're, you're a man or a woman. Even that in our culture, I think, uh, it's so interesting to think when Jesus creates very clear binary categories, uh, we, we like to try to mess with them. And then towards the end of this sermon, he says there's two rows roads, right? The wide gate and the road that leads to destruction, the narrow gate and the road that leads to eternal life. There's only two roads. You're going through one of them. And he talks about two trees. Good tree produces good fruit. Bad tree produces bad fruit. There's only, there's only two trees. Maybe we try to create a third tree. Well, I'm, a, I'm the third tree. I'm the good tree. That, I'm the bad tree that makes good fruit or the good tree that makes bad fruit. And it's, just, it's just two. And then he gives us two options for builders, wise and foolish. And the wise and the foolish builder have two things in common and two things that are very different. Uh, the two things that, according to Jesus in this story, that they have in common is that the, the, the wise person that you look at the end of the story, like they survived a pretty nasty storm and the foolish person who lost everything, they had in common that they both heard the same message, okay? They both heard Jesus's teaching. So like that would still apply to everyone in this room. Everyone in this room still has to decide whether we're going to be a wise builder or a foolish builder because both have hearing the message uh, in common. Maybe they both attended. Maybe they both took notes. Maybe they both uh, cheered. Maybe they both uh, even discussed it a little bit. So they had that in common. And then what they also have in common uh, is that they both experienced uh, a pretty nasty storm. Okay, the, the people that were wise and the people that were foolish both faced the same exact storm. And if you go back and look at the text, uh, it seems like Jesus actually went out of his way to use the exact same phrasing for both storms. Because it's the same thing that hit both of their lives. Uh, but the two things that the, they had uh, very differently, the differences between the wise and the foolish builders were one, how they responded to what they heard. 
and two, the damage that was done or not done by the storm. Okay, the foolish, here's the difference. The foolish, they heard the message of Jesus, the teachings of the entire Sermon on the Mount, and then just walked back into life as normal. Nothing changed in their hearts, nothing changed in their wallets, nothing changed with their prayer, nothing changed with their repentance, nothing changed with their hope, just kind of heard it, maybe appreciated it, just walked back into life. But the wise says that they heard and they, they did it or they, they acted upon it, they responded to it. And get, get away a moment from the metaphor of the builders. He's talking about like a Christian listens to what Jesus says and actually responds to it. And not in a perfect way, right? It's not saying that if you're a wise builder, then you've, you just nailed the Sermon on the Mount. Because I think if we're honest, none of us should be able to say that. Like, we just crushed it. <laughs> I just crushed it. Like, it's not, it's not talking about perfection. I think uh, Professor Quarles, who I've quoted a little bit over these uh, last few months, he's a professor at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, he says this, uh, speaking of the wise builders, he says, it's not that they do it perfectly by keeping all the commands of the Sermon on the Mount all the time, uh, and hence they must appeal to the Father for forgiveness on a daily basis, which is from the Sermon on the Mount. Right? The Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew six twelve talks about uh, needing the Father and confessing sin. So it doesn't mean that we're perfect, but he says this, but their overall pattern of life is marked by submission to Jesus's teachings. Okay, The wise builder, we, we heard what Jesus said and it has shaped our lives, not yet in a perfect way, but it's beginning the Holy Spirit through submission to Jesus' words are shaping us and molding us over time into the image of Jesus where all of a sudden you realize um, that your life is being shaped by Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. That's, that's, that's the first way they were different. One heard, one did. Second way, uh, the damage obviously done to the storm. The first one, the foolish man that built his house upon the sand, or actually the second in the story, uh, says that when the storm came, absolutely destroyed, uh, crushed his house, nothing left, all the money, all the investment gone, no place uh, for his family to be safe. Second one, storm blows over, everything's fine, house is still standing. Uh, I took a trip um, in March of 2006. If you remember, I know Cajun Kevin will remember this, but I think it was late August of 05 when Katrina hit uh, New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and I took a, a group of college students on a mission trip in spring break of 06 down to the Ninth Ward uh, to help do some, uh, it wasn't really rebuilding, it was still at that point uh, just gutting houses from the damage. Uh, and I looked back at those pictures this week because I was, I, I remembered in my, uh, just as I was thinking about that trip, uh, that was just unbelievable devastation by that storm. I mean, like catastrophic scene like not even a, a robust of enough word to explain what it looked like. Uh, I mean, there were houses that had been moved uh, miles. There were houses on top of cars. There was just unbelievable devastation. And I remember driving through one particular neighborhood uh, and most of the houses were gone and washed away. And there was a handful that were still there. And the ones that were still there were on a concrete slab. The foundation actually determined whether they stood or, with, or were washed away. Um, 
I, I want to dig into this storm uh, for just a moment because there's a fair bit of disagreement on exactly what storm Jesus is talking about. He's obviously saying there's something you, we need to figure out and obey, and it's going to have a massive payoff because this storm is just inevitable. Like everybody, it's just, it, whatever he's talking about is going to hit our lives and determine whatever we decide to do or not do in obedience to his words is going to determine what happens. And so here's the disagreement with the storm. Some people would say, and these are all like, you know, legitimate orthodox theologians that I trust and they just disagree. Uh, so half of them would say something to the effect of Jesus is talking about just the storms of life, uh, suffering. Um, being abandoned by someone, losing your job, having the, the market, uh, bottom of the market fallout, being sick, being betrayed, being slandered, uh, being laid off, being, uh, uh, having a, a broken relationship, like just the inevitable difficulties and storms that come to life. Uh, but uh, the other half would say that, especially based off of what Pastor Jonathan preached last week and what Jesus said just immediately before this, uh, that it's talking about the actual storm of the second coming and the final judgment of Jesus, where he is going to judge everyone in a very binary way. Heaven, hell, sheep, goats, righteous, unrighteous. Okay, and so... I want to tease both of these out because quite honestly, I think if you were to put me in a corner and say, which one do you think it is? I would say, yes. <laughs> I, I, I think, I, I honestly, I'm not exactly sure what Jesus means, but I know according to the rest of Jesus' teaching, I believe they're both true. Okay, I believe they're both true. Um, so the first, and I, and I want to back up and just as, as conclusion, we're going to walk through a, a fair bit of, uh, of the entire Sermon on the Mount that we have spent months and months studying. Uh, first with the lens of if, if Jesus is talking about life is just going to kick you in the teeth sometimes. It's going to be difficult. You're going to face suffering and persecution and affliction. And the Sermon on the Mount helps us know how to live our lives in a way that it doesn't destroy us. How to really, even internally, how to have a health of, of, of the soul that can navigate uh, difficulty. So if we back up and walk through the Sermon on the Mount that way, uh, Jesus begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Y'all remember this? He's not talking about a poverty of bank accounts. Some of you are like, oh, I can really, <laughs> I can really jive with that. He's like, blessed are those who have this, this poverty of spirit where we recognize um, that there's no holiness or righteousness or goodness in us, um, that we are spiritually bankrupt uh, and we have nothing. He has everything. We are driven to a place where we have to come to God through Christ for everything. That is meant for us to take that posture and obey and to, to be reminded that we have a, a spiritual bankruptcy in our nature, that we are poor in spirit. And that's a, that's a practical thing that's going to help you, I think, navigate the storms. What about when he asks us uh, to, to hunger and to thirst for righteousness because he promises those that do, uh, quote, will be filled. And I, I know I'm asking you all to remember some things that like, were months ago, but when we preached through, like Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake, for they will be filled. That's a very passive filling. It's you just long for something and then somebody else fills, fills you, that, that they give you a righteousness, they, do, they, they fill you, do something to you that you can't do to yourself. So like to, to, to hunger and to thirst for not just 
righteousness that comes through doing good things, but truly a positional righteousness that only comes through Christ. It's something that has to be done to you. You can't do that yourself, which is why uh, baptism is such an unbelievable picture. Um, because baptism was designed, I believe, uh, as not just an expression of, of, of your believing the gospel, but baptism has to be done to you. Uh, someone else has to baptize you. And I hadn't thought about this in great depth until uh, the staff was talking a bit this week. And uh, Jonathan Galvan told us a story when he was uh, a college pastor in Irving. And they had a college student that was just reading the Bible by himself, uh, realized he believed the gospel and he was safe. So he went into his pool and he baptized himself. I mean, just like, you know, hold the nose, cross over and just like fall in. I don't know how long he stayed at the bottom thinking, oh, somebody's, you know, got to lift. Like the whole point of baptism, not the whole point, but a major is like someone else does it to you. Like Jesus does something else to you. And so even this in the Sermon on the Mount, to, to hunger and to thirst, there's this promise that you will be filled. Something from the outside will bring your righteousness. What about merciful? To, 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 to practically labor to show mercy to people because we have been shown incredible mercy. You see, these are very practical things that we are supposed to pursue. What about to be peacemakers? If you remember this, blessed are the peacemakers to truly try to fight for and, and, and long for and strive for peace, mainly peace in relationships, the shalom that is part of God's design to be peacemakers because we have peace with God through Christ. Uh, those who are persecuted, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, when you face that culturally, the cultural pressure that uh, what you believe goes against the, the grain of the culture and you're in some ways persecuted, this is a practical way that we're supposed to learn to live through that. And then Jesus says to be salt and light. I think that's literally a practical command that he has given us that you should be thinking about and we should all together be thinking about how can I be salt and light in the relationships that I have with people that don't know Jesus? How can my good works help them to see and understand and give glory to God the Father? Salt, is it prevents decay. Light obviously illuminates darkness. Jesus is saying that you as a follower of him have a responsibility and opportunity to use your life as salt and light. Do you remember when he talks about anger? Be really careful in your anger not to sin. Uh, in fact, he would say that hatred in our heart is, is the root of anger. And it, like, what an unbelievably practical thing for us to understand is how to, to navigate the anger that we, uh, that we feel uh, when we're hurt, when we're sinned against, when maybe we're abused. Uh, to deal with anger. What about dealing with lust? Jesus got into it. He went there. He talks about using sex in only a God-honoring way in a covenant uh, relationship of marriage between husband and wife. Anything short of that is sin and destruction. He talks about even down to, the, to what, where our eyes go to look and what our heart, what our heart desires to, to, to pursue sexual purity. Uh, he talks about having our, our words be true and, and our oaths be, be meaningful and be careful what we say because words, words matter. What an unbelievable practical thing for us to know. Uh, he talks about loving our enemies. Do y'all remember that? No? 
I'll get you the date of the sermon. I'll send it to you. You can get a little refresher. The reason I remember that is because if I was looking back this week, uh, that was probably the most uh, helpful sermon for me personally out of this entire study uh, is to think about how do we respond to people who are against us, uh, to practically love our enemies, uh, to give generously. Jesus talks about having open hands uh, where, where God gets to use us as a conduit to bless and to help others through financial generosity. Uh, he taught us to pray. Do you remember this? When you pray, go into your closet and, uh, and pray to your Father who is in uh, heaven and hears you in secret and pray, Father. And then we, we, he taught us how to pray. That was so that we might pray. And there's something in, in, that, that happens in your heart when you have a steady diet of prayer that, that strengthens you to enable you to, to navigate storms, to pray. What about fasting? Do you remember what Jesus said to fast? Uh, to fast, to when you fast, don't make your uh, cheeks look sunken in so that people give you a lot of uh, praise for being very spiritual and fasting, but uh, like to, to truly put that to work where you set aside the needs of the body to recognize the needs of your soul. Uh, store up treasures in heaven, not in treasures on earth. Don't invest all of your life in things that are going to vaporize and be burned away. Invest your life in the kingdom of God and people. Anxiety, anybody remember that? No, I'll send you that sermon as well. Maybe I'll just stop asking you. Jeez, like this is practical stuff he's given us. Don't be anxious for anything, but like consider that Jesus takes care of, of things much less value than you. You can trust him. You can trust him to take care of you. Uh, judge not. Don't be hypocritical in our judgment. Take the plank out of our eyes so that we can help our brother remove the speck from his and ask and seek and knock, right? An entire sermon of very practical things for us not to just know, but to what? To do, Okay, spend some time this week and go through the list and read. Like, has, has, has there been any change in your life based on these things after us walking through the Sermon on the Mount? It's not about knowing. It's about doing with what we know. Okay, so if it is a sermon about the storms of life, and if Jesus is saying the, the wise man built his house on the rock, he heeded my words, he believed them, they, he, and she, he or she did them, then when the storms and the suffering come, it's not going to destroy you, which it does many folks. Many folks, when, when difficulty hits, when suffering hits, when layoffs hit, when financial hardships hit, people become bitter, become angry, they push others away, they become insecure, and it will literally, like, if you could relate that to an analogy, it's like the whole house got washed away when difficulty hit, when cancer hit, when whatever it might be hit. But what if Jesus is talking about a bigger storm? What if he really is talking about what he just referenced the few verses before, that there is a day coming when Jesus will show up just as sure as he came to earth the first time, he will return, and it's not going to be in humility to, uh, to, to come offer his life. It's going to be as a king on a throne with a horse and a sword to separate and to judge. And so if Jesus is saying, you need to be very, very careful how you respond to his words, because on that day, what you decided to do with Jesus's words will determine whether your house stands or whether it falls, okay? So if Jesus is talking about that, the Sermon on the Mount takes on a little bit of a different flavor. 
Okay, and, and again, hear me, because I, I truly think that the Sermon on the Mount is doing both at the same time. In one sense, it's teaching, like from Jesus Christ's lips himself, he's teaching us how to live Christian lives, how to, in, in, in our behavior and morality, how to operate as God wants us to. But also, it's a picture of something so much bigger and so much grander that is actually your only hope for navigating the biggest storm that is uh, coming for each of us. Uh, I, I, when, I was, when I was younger, which actually I hate that phrase, like when was I not younger? Uh, you know, as people always tell me, here's a picture of when I was younger. I'm like, that's every single picture that's ever been taken of you. It's like, well, here's a picture. Of, oh, actually, there was an app a while ago where you could, like, age yourself. Do y'all remember that? Like, here's a picture of me, you know, when I was older. I did that for a while. Uh, that was uh, rough. <laughs> um, anyways, I pole vaulted when I was younger. Uh, and I remember in sixth grade, uh, I signed up uh, in, at track at Bushland Elementary uh, for pole vaulting. And none of us knew what we were doing. And we sure didn't have the technical abilities to be pole vaulting. Uh, but but I, uh, I, I cleared six foot. Uh, which uh, it was like, the, I think it was uh, like the, the winner out of all the sixth grade pole vaulters, but it's a, a little humbling when you look next door and the high jumpers are like jumping over the same height. Like I had a stick and, uh, and they didn't, and it was kind of the same, but I got a little better. Eighth grade was, you know, I got cleared, cleared a little bit more. And um, I, I remember when I, was, uh, when I was jumping in eighth grade, uh, I, w- I was shooting for like 10-6 or something like that, but the high schoolers were there jumping, and they had it set at like 13, and I remember seeing the standard up there, uh, the bars, and thinking, you know what, someday I can probably get to that. Because there was an element of, the, bi- the bar was, was high enough where there was an element of like encouragement, Okay, and, and I think in, in, in one sense, that, that is the Sermon on the Mount, that like w- the, the bar is high and we need to try to actually practically love our enemies, fast, pray, like uh, take care of our anger, deal with lust, and, and try to live godly lives. But what if I walked up with my, with my pole, you know, my track cleats, I'm all dressed up, and then the standards and the bar are 400 feet would that encourage me to try harder? Everybody say no. No, I would be utterly disappointed and realize I could absolutely not do it and I would turn and I would walk away because it is just so far, it doesn't even make any sense. That doesn't encourage me to try harder, that encourages me to give up. Many people, if you, and this is harder for those of us who maybe grew up around the Bible and around church, but if you just open up the Sermon on the Mount and read it, Honestly, that's what you get. You get this picture painted of if that is truly what is expected of me, it's not like in a year or two I'm going to clear it. it. It is so far away that I cannot get close. There was a professor, I think it was at a, a, a I don't know what to call it, a godly or pagan university. Texas A&M, I think is what it was. <laughs> Let the reader understand. You can fill in the blank. Um, she, she had her, her students uh, read through, and most of them were not Christian students, uh, according to her, uh, read through the Sermon on the Mount uh, and, and just tell her their, their gut response. Uh, and most of them, their response was that they just hated it. It just seemed absolutely ridiculous. Like, who on earth can go through life and not look at someone lustfully? Or, or, or who can just live with unbelievable generosity? Uh, or, 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 you know, just kind of, you walk through, and if you're honest, we're like, man, I can't do that. 
There's absolutely no way that I can do that. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher in London, he said this. He says, if anyone has ever read the Sermon on the Mount, honestly, then they realize just how impossible it is and they pray, God, would you please save me from the Sermon on the Mount? It's both, okay? So I wanna go back just for a moment. I need to move quickly. But to look at the Sermon on the Mount, not just through what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live as Christians, driven by grace. We're not trying to earn favor. We've already got it through Christ. But, but, but what if it serves uh, as, as the standard that only one man was ever going to meet? Okay, like when you look at the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount and he didn't have a microphone, but if he did, uh, let, just pretend that he did a little mic drop and then he proceeded to obey every single part of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, it's a, it's a picture of Christ, even from the very beginning. Uh, some of you might remember this, but uh, Matthew goes out of his way uh, to describe Jesus as, uh, be- before he, he, he delivers this word from God to the people of God, he says, he went up on the mountain. Do you remember this? It, it's, it's Matthew quoting Exodus when Moses went up on a mountain to come and to deliver the Ten Commandments to God's people. That he was the mediator in, a, in, a, in some regard, giving God's expectations and commands to his people. And, and that was, Moses was just a shadow of Jesus. Jesus is a better Moses. He shows up on the mountain, not just to give the Ten Commandments, but to express the heart and the intent of God all the way down to what your heart truly wants. He's like, yeah, I know it says don't kill, but like when, I'm, I'm, when Jesus says, when I wrote that, because Jesus has always been, he would say, like, the, the intent was that you wouldn't even have hate in your heart. So even from the beginning, Matthew paints a picture like Jesus is the Moses to end all Moses. When he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he is delivering the, the, the message from God to people all the way down to the intent of the author. That's how it starts. And then, like, blessed are the meek and humble who is more humble and meek than Jesus to step off of a throne in glory and to invade humanity that he created and to be abused and ignored and mocked and to wash feet of, uh, like literally to wash feet that he created. He is the meekest of the meek. He's the most humble, merciful, blessed are the merciful. No one has shown more mercy than Christ. He is merciful, the pure in heart. Listen, Jesus' heart was pure down to the bottom. The peacemaker. Like Jesus was fulfilling that to a scope that none of us could get. He was making peace as many of the New Testament writers would say, between God and sinners, making peace by the cross. He's the ultimate peacemaker, persecuted for righteousness' sake. No one comes close to Christ, being crucified and murdered, yet even the judge presiding said, can't find anything wrong with him. And we looked. He's, he's persecuted for righteousness' sake, salt and light. Uh, we are the salt of the earth, but, but Jesus says that he is the salt of the earth in a way that we are not. Like he is the light of the world. 
to love your enemies and to give your life for them, boy, he steps into that, fulfills it absolutely perfectly. Uh, and, And you remember this, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That's him setting the bar at 400 feet and then him proceeding to pole vault over it. His righteousness is the only one that exceeded that of the Pharisees from action down to intent. And then Jesus would face, and this is why I think there's so much truth to the fact that Jesus is talking about not just the storms in life, although that is true, but the one big storm that all of us will have to face. Jesus faced that storm head on. And I want to quote Pastor Keller because I quote him almost every Sunday for one, um, but Tim Keller passed away this week and what a, uh, what a monumental legacy um, that he has left. Uh, it just, it's, hard, it's hard to explain, but uh, tens of thousands of, of just pastors I know that would probably put him at the top of the list of people that have helped him to not just uh, so open up and to see the scriptures, but uh, have a glimpse of the glory of Christ that, that overwhelms you. This is what he says. Keller says, the only storm that can really destroy the storm of divine justice and judgment on sin and evil will, he's talking to Christians, will never come upon you because Jesus bowed his head into that ultimate storm willingly for you. He died receiving the punishment for sin that we deserve so we can be pardoned when we trust him. When you see him doing that for you, it certainly does not answer all your questions about your suffering, but it proves that despite all of it, he still loves you because he was thrown into that storm for you. You can be sure that there's love at the heart of this storm for you as well. Even in the story that Jesus concludes with, it's talking about him, that Jesus is meeting the ultimate storm head on so that you won't have to. And the last thing is when Jesus talks about the foundation, okay? The stone is the word that he uses. Jesus is the stone. I mean, from beginning uh, of the sermon that he is a better Moses to uh, he's fulfilled all the beatitudes and all the commands and fulfilled all the righteousness all the way down to the closing where it talks about uh, just build your life on the rock. Who's the rock? Jesus is the rock. This is a monumental theme. It goes all Old Testament, New Testament. Isaiah 28, 6, the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Christ says this. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. That's Jerusalem. A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. The apostles preached Jesus as the stone. Uh, The first few weeks of the Christian church in Acts chapter 4, Peter says this, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, meaning uh, he was the stone that was all of Christianity was supposed to be built upon, but the Jewish people rejected him and tried to build their own version on their own morality and their own righteousness. Like you rejected the foundation, you rejected the stone, but, 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 And Jesus said, like, when he's talking about the church, he says, upon this rock, talking about himself, he will build his church. He says, uh, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and he has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Peter says later, as you, Christians, as you come to Jesus... 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. You yourselves, you're like living stones that are being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, is that talking about the storms of life or the second coming? Yes. Build your life on Jesus Christ. Find your hope in Jesus Christ. Find your righteousness in Jesus Christ. Labor to obey his commands by grace. And he says, that is a wise builder who listens to my words, who obeys them, who has built his house upon the rock. And when the storm comes, when the waves hit, whether it's tomorrow or the second coming, you will stand because your life was built on Christ. Bow your head, close your eyes if you would with me. Jesus, you are the rock of ages. You're a sure foundation. You're the only thing in this life and the next that has proven strong enough to build our lives upon. I'd, I'm so grateful that you have given us the opportunity to bank everything and to put everything on you. And you've proven with your resurrection that you can stand, that you're a firm foundation. I pray for everyone who has heard these words who has listened to these sermons, who has read this text, that you would help it not just simply to be words that we've heard, but things that we believe and we respond to and we obey. We thank you, Jesus, for setting the bar so high and for clearing it yourself and then for handing us forgiveness and righteousness as a gift. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.